What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Are you ready for season two of Discography? I'm your host, Mark with a C, and Discography is a show where we look at a great artist through the lens of only their canon albums of first release material to see who they really are and how it all stacks up. And you should know that for season two, we will be discussing the albums by the one, the only, Janet Jackson. Singer, songwriter, dancer, actress, a household name, one of the biggest stars the Western world has ever known, and though she sold over 100 million records worldwide, few have really poured through her canonical albums to see how they stack up. We're taking the deepest dive into Janet Jackson's studio records one can possibly imagine, only on Consequence Podcast Network. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to the Opus. I'm your host, Paula Mejia, and for the next four weeks, we'll be delving into the intricacies of an album that continues to shape how we tell stories, Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks. The Opus is a co-production between Consequence of Sound and Sony that re-examines an inimitable album's re-release and continuing legacy. We'll explore how masterpieces continue to evolve, shaping lives, shaking rafters, and ingraining themselves into our culture. Maybe you're a longtime fan who wants to go deeper. Maybe you're a first-time listener curious to hear more. Either way, you're in the right place. And I was standing on the side of the road, rain falling on my shoes. Heading out for the East Coast, Lord knows I've paid some dues getting through. Tangled up in blue. Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks was released in 1975, but keeps finding its way into the present. It did for me. Growing up in Texas, I'd heard Bob Dylan's songs here and there. I loved the slow swells of songs like Shelter from the Storm, but hadn't gone deep on his catalog until early college. One day, I found a dusty copy of Blood on the Tracks at my local record store. I was struck by the cover. We see Dylan in profile, but he's obscured in a way, just out of focus. I didn't know all the songs on the album till I bought it and put it on the turntable. It became immediately clear that these songs drew blood.
Blood on the Tracks is a matter at hand, the focus of this podcast. But what about the series itself? What makes an opus? It's tough to say, and so many of these stories are non-linear. For me, an opus is something that has impact beyond its intended sphere, something we keep coming back to. Music is a product of its time, Blood on the Tracks absolutely is. But the fact that something can transcend its era, finding continued resonance in new ears, is rare. It's a work that's inspired hundreds of covers, different interpretations, and even film adaptations. It's albums like these that have a place in history's music canon, though traditional ideas of canons have been shifting radically and opening up in recent years. Blood on the Tracks continues to be a standard, a barometer of sharp, heart-wrenching songwriting. The album, which spawned classics like Tangled Up in Blue, captured Dylan at a pivotal moment in his career. At that point, he'd retreated from fame and acclaim, living a quiet life in upstate New York for eight years. Not even the first time he disappeared, or left people wondering if he was retired, or worse, dead. But I see you in the sky above and the tall grass and the ones I love. You're gonna make me lonesome when you go. After getting the band back together and warming up on an early 1974 tour, Dylan set about a series of now legendary recording sessions, one in New York and one in his home of Minnesota. Those sessions, ramshackle, intuitive, raw, eventually became the album that's since been percolating within hearts and television show soundtracks. A lot of critics at the time saw Blood on the Tracks as a breakup record, and it's not tough to see why. Former flames flit throughout songs like Simple Twist of Fate, which is about the tragic nature of bad timing and romance. And If You See Her Say Hello, my favorite on this album, is a song about accepting that someone's long gone and already having new experiences that aren't shared with you. But these songs also tap into something beyond that, like shifting social and political tides, and how people change with them. Blood on the Tracks is amplified even further given the recent release of the compilation record More Blood, More Tracks. As part of the bootleg series, it examines Dylan's demos and many takes that preceded the final version of his album. Through these alternate histories, we're able to see new revelations and turns of phrase, ideas that continue grounding us in the present, while catapulting us into the future. She left here last early spring is living there, I hear Say for me that I'm alright Though new things come and go She might think that I've forgotten her Don't tell her it isn't so With me today to unpack Dylan's songwriting, his legacy, and the music canon are two brilliant women. Jill Sternheimer. I'm Jill Sternheimer. I'm the Director of Public Programming at Lincoln Center. And Ann Powers. I'm Ann Powers. I'm a critic and correspondent for NPR Music. We go back a bit. In 2017, the three of us conceptualized and created Turning the Tables, a collaboration between the Lincoln Center and NPR Music. It re-examines a popular music canon and places women and non-binary musicians front and center through an editorial list in a concert series. To start out, I'd love for us to get into what makes an opus. What has that historically meant and what does that mean now? In popular music, the opus is always associated with the album rather than in classical music, where it is a term referring to a body of work or say in literature, the way it's used to refer to perhaps more than one book, say a trilogy, the Gormenghast trilogy would be an opus, for example. But the album is the unit of consumption it has been the unit of consumption in popular music since, I guess, the 60s. 
That's what uh, Jill and I have decided. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, now perhaps it's coming to an end. So, Paula, I think there's no better time for this podcast because there's so much debate about whether the album will survive as an art form. And this is a great time to be looking back at classic albums and discussing what impact they've made in our lives and how they work as albums. That's so interesting that you make the distinction between what an opus is within popular music as opposed to a body of work in classical music or in literature. I never thought about it like that. In classical music, of course, an opus is used to mark the chronology of a composer's production. Beethoven produced these particular sonatas at this point in his career, therefore they are considered opus 35 or whatever, you know. And until recently, I think... It was rare for the kinds of pop artists who are considered serious artists to work outside the album form. So the album has been, you know, romanticized, fetishized, and also opusized, I guess. Before 64, an album was often just the collection of singles. And I think it was that mid-60s period that people were beginning to look at an album as a palette, an album as a single canvas. It was kind of a hard line to delineate in the sand, but it made sense. There have been many books written about Bob Dylan's body of work, but I like the opus as an album. Musicians mark their creative process via albums and have for a long time. The album gives you a unit around which you can tour, a unit you can promote. I think it's really interesting, like with Dylan, to get into Blood on the Tracks, he used this particular album to project a certain self. And then we as listeners receive that self or receive that story and live with it and change it via our listening. This was a way for Dylan to sort of come back into the public consciousness after being away for a while. There were questions about whether he was even going to come back and what he was up to. And he emerges with Blood on the Tracks. I mean, for me, Blood on the Tracks was a hugely important record. I had a friend in high school who was really into this record and he got me into it and we did all the things, all the things you're supposed to do when you're nerding out about a record, wrote the lyrics down on pieces of paper, analyzed them, talk about the songs, how they related to our lives. It just became really a way into that super obsessive, nerdy rock listening for me and for my friends. This was an album that felt very immediate, but was several years old by the time I got into it. And Dylan was on to his Christian phase, a totally different phase. So it also had that aura of reading like a great book, you know, like you read Fitzgerald or something and Great Gatsby, and it took place in this other era, but it related to your life. It still had that aura around it. I had a friend in college who was the biggest fan of Bob Dylan I've ever met in my entire life. Like she knew everything about him, every release. And when we were freshmen in college, we would go to the record store all the time. And I bought Blood on the Tracks on vinyl, even though I didn't have a record player at the time. Like I would go to my friend's place and take over my, my records, just like shuffle over and listen to things that they had too. And that was one of them where I thought, pretty early on in building a record collection like this deserves a place here even when that was still something I was starting to build with me when I was in high school I got the book of the Rolling Stones 100 best albums and I just made it my mission every week I would pick one I would make my mom drive me to the used record stores you know before I was 16 before I could drive and I would pick a record to get and I would live with it in my room I would tape it onto a cassette so I could have it 
always with me on my Sony Walkman. <laughs> so my first Dylan stuff was Blonde on Blonde. And I don't think I was quite ready in high school for a real Dylan phase. So I remember in college, that was the first time I really got into Blood on the Tracks. It was one of those albums. I was so alone with it in my car time and time and time again, just living the lyrics. I think part of why this record has resonated for so many people is because the characters that emerge in these songs are universal, but also like very intimate because I think he doesn't name anyone unless I'm mistaken. Like there's no names you can point to. It's more about feelings and betrayals and reconsiderations of past relationships, which I think everybody has some kind of story. Yeah. So much of Dylan's earlier stuff, I loved it. It was poetic. It was amazing. It was political. It was alive. But this felt emotional. And this resonated for me exactly. And, you know, it felt vulnerable. There was a person in there. This is a story about a person. And it just it did resonate in a much deeper way than most of his other catalog did. I mean, I think there is always a person inside of Dylan's music, although some debate and, you know, he himself has said he's just a channel for all of American history and culture. Very <laughs> modest. <way> to- <laughs> but uh, as someone who's fascinated with what happened to American culture in the 70s, you know, I look at this record as sort of peak 70s, along with so many other albums that came out that year whether it was Joni Mitchell's The Hissing of Summer Lawns, David Bowie's Young Americans, Paul Simon's Still Crazy After All These Years, Joan Baez, Diamonds and Rust. You know, all of these records spoke to listeners in a very personal way. And it was a time when, you know, Americans were sort of in retreat politically. It was a confusing time politically, kind of a scary time, but also a time when identity was flourishing gay pride, black power, feminism and women's rights, and also the sexual revolution was at its peak at this time. We're just starting to feel the beginning of disco. And all of that, I think, contributed to the environment in which Dylan could make his confessional record. There's lore that he was inspired by Joni Mitchell's Blue, and that's why Tangled Up in Blue is called Tangled Up in Blue, which makes a lot of sense to me because just like that record is kind of like a song cycle about a particular or maybe several relationships. Is it a confessional record? Dylan says no. He says he was writing about characters, not his divorce. But of course, Jacob Dylan, his son, has said, you know, that's the record that he can't listen to because that's his life. That was their life at the time. And I think even if you look at John Baez putting out Diamonds and Rust in the same year, You know, Joan Baez always a song interpreter and the kind of standard bearer for folk music and for political folk music puts out this record in which the title track is so clearly about her relationship with Dylan and her great confessional moment. That was so much the era of uh, the confessional. If you're talking peak 70s, that was peak confessional. (laughs) It's interesting that there were supposedly two versions of this record, the New York version that was the more acoustic spare version. And then he went into the studio in Minneapolis and made the kind of soft rock. This is Dylan doing soft rock. I never would think to call this a soft rock record. I got to really kind of think on that one. (laughs) 
I cannot put idiot wind and soft rock really in the same. <laughs> My brain is exploding right now. <laughs> like think about the way he sings, you know, that troubadour Dylan. There's a kind of an existentialism about it, a philosophical tone that feels a little different for me than other Dylan works. I wonder how much he was listening to Leonard Cohen at the time, because there's like a very Cohen-esque sort of fatalism about it that I love, too. But hey, I don't really know. I was reading about how the record came about, and it just it sounds like those New York sessions were just fast. He wasn't concerned at all about being a perfectionist, which was probably not like him, because I would assume he was always a perfectionist and knowing what he wanted in his head. It's like he just needed to get those songs out. And then he went to Minnesota and they re-recorded about half of them. Half of what they re-recorded is what ended up on the record. But he had he stopped the release date and pushed it back a little bit. You can hear the songs evolve just in tiny increments, both sonically and lyrics wise. And that for me is the fun part of it, just to see how he would change one word, you know. And that's a real gift to those of us who want to get deep inside what these songs mean. And the fact that he changed Entangled Up in Blue, the line, some are mathematicians, some are doctor's wives. He changed it to carpenter's wives. And I'm now obsessed with that and want to write a whole novel about why he changed that word. (laughs) All the people we used to know, they're an illusion to me now. Some are mathematicians, some are doctor's wives. Don't know how it all got started. Don't know what they're doing with their lives All the people we used to know They're an illusion to me now Some are mathematicians Some are carpenters' wives Don't know how it all got started I don't know what they're doing with their lives But me, I'm still on the road It's like changing from a John Updike novel to a Raymond Carver novel or something, you know. (laughs) Very well said. I think you have a career as a rock critic. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) There are certainly a lot of opuses that artists have made who don't get their due in canonical sorts of lists or however they're formed and who gets to decide like what is in the canon anyway. And especially with Blood on the Tracks, like, What kind of hand did Dylan have in crafting that canon that we know of now? Even before we throw out categories like the album or the opus or the great work, I think we have to look at the structures that designate one thing a great work and another a minor work. And that structure in popular music has left out women for a long time. I do think we're in a moment where that may be changing. And I'm very hopeful because of people like you, Paula, honestly, your generation of music writers are changing the game. And I'm so grateful for that. But Dylan was, you know, he was the perfect man. (laughs) He was not the perfect man in the (laughs) romantic sense, in the Don Draper sense of the term. (laughs) In some ways, the fact that he wasn't so much a sex symbol He was supposedly a serious artist. His fan base was not teenage girls, as it was for the Beatles, as it was for even the Stones in some ways. Here was this guy who, like, stood up as an adult from the beginning of his career, connected with history, connected with larger social issues, presented himself as a kind of a bard, you know, speaking the truth of the culture. And his decision to present himself that way guaranteed his prominence as long as he could write songs that matched that ambition, which he could. 
he's won the Nobel Prize. <laughs> he's the <laughs> biggest crossover artist to like literary prestige that music has ever produced. The journey Dylan took from folk singer still is the master narrative by which pop artists are judged. But the history of popular culture tends to emphasize commercially successful work, but also work that is prestige, you know, that is approved by a coterie of critics and influencers. And the fact is, throughout the history of popular music, for most of that history, men have really dominated those categories. And so works by men have often been held up as central. And, you know, thinking about this period and artists like, say, Buffy St. Marie, who was making these incredible adventurous albums, concept albums. She was one of the first artists who used electronics on her album, Illuminations. You know, why do we not remember her work alongside the work of Dylan? We have to examine why Dylan could occupy that space, but then always have to also acknowledge that he absolutely filled it. You know, I mean, the work is unimpeachable. And it really, it wasn't the emperor's new clothes. He was completely delivering. You know, I think of um, guys that wore blazers with suede patches on their elbows and smoking a, a pipe. This was palatable <laughs> to them. This was, they were the kingmakers. You know, seriously, they were reading Dylan as poetry. They were listening to him as a serious musician, as a serious artist. And it worked, whether it was a college professor, whether it was a, a music critic. It made sense to them in a way that putting Joni Mitchell or Buffy St. Marie in the time when all this music came out, that might have been a harder thing for them to do. You know, Dylan's words read well on the page. And not every Beatles lyric necessarily reads well on the page. I mean, music shouldn't be judged by how well lyrics read. Music is about voicing and about what happens when you combine words with other sounds. I don't think that Little Richard's songs are any less profound than Bob Dylan's. I think Dylan would agree. But, I think you're right. <laughs> but, you know, they don't read as well on the page. So, you know, when Richard Goldstein edited this book in 1969 called The Poetry of Rock, and you had lyrics by Procol Harum and The Doors next to Leonard Cohen and Dylan, well, Leonard Cohen and Dylan, they just read better, you know? I mean, they read like actual writers, whereas Jim Morrison for better or worse. <laughs> Don't go there, girl. Oh, absolutely not. I do not want to see those lyrics printed on a page. <laughs> I don't think that diminishes what the doors accomplish. I just think, you know, Dylan, he's not only words, but words are so important for him. And I think words have endured. There are so many lines that he has that really examine the minutiae of what can start to build into resentment in a relationship that is so relatable. I was actually rereading Ellen Willis's essay about listening to this album, and she had this really incredible line in her review where she says, Dylan is miserable not only because he has lost his woman, but because he has been forced to admit that what he thought was his innocence was only his ignorance. And I think mm. that having that admission come through as well really balances maybe the outsized role that the male character, the wanderer, has on this album. I think I saw the women in, in some of these songs. I guess I saw some of their power in that I think that Bob Dylan was kind of grooving on female energy on some level. A song like You're Going to Make Me Lonesome When You Go, it was definitely about her beauty and just the sensuality of being with this woman in a field and having a flower and 
having this good feeling and then she's going to make him lonesome when she goes. So he becomes cynical again. I think he kind of rides that line between romance and cynicism in a lot of these songs, sort of the same like in Buckets of Rain. There's something about a cynical love song that I guess that's definitely very deep in my wheelhouse. I love that. (laughs) Don't know what that says about me. Dragon clouds so high above, I've only known careless love. It always has hit me from below. But this time round, it's more correct. Right on target, so direct. You're going to make me lose when you go. I agree with you about the power thing, but I think the power comes from the walking away. You know, and I think that's what's interesting. Yeah. There is a way you can read it also as a man's response to feminism and attempt to adjust to feminism. (laughs) I think that there's the understanding and maybe this is where the treading the line between cynicism and romanticism comes in of there's nothing I can do about it. You know, like if someone's going to leave, they're going to leave. Like I'm going to be completely maybe consumed with lovesickness for a while and wondering what could have been and re-examining my own actions through that. But ultimately, people are going to do what they're going to do. And especially in the 70s when women were exercising like more autonomy than they had ever had before, I think that that became really clear. But I think what you're saying about power in these songs and with the power stemming from walking away is super interesting. And I see that especially in a song like uh, If You See Her Say Hello, because the image I have in that song is of a woman liberated and she appears in Tangier and she's doing whatever she wants and she's going to meet all kinds of people along the way and be free to wander, much like he has been free to wander all this time. This, to me, is one of the first times I can recall a man grappling with that part of feminism. I can't think of any albums before this, and maybe there are some, I'm just not thinking of them off the top of my head, where men are grappling with the new woman. Wow, now you pose a challenge and I'm like frantically Googling trying to figure out. (laughs) And I threw the gauntlet down. (laughs) Well, I did want to get into how this album continuously achieve this sort of mythic status and what factors contributed to the mythology of Blood on the Tracks expanding to the point where one of the biggest film directors is optioning it for a movie. I come back time and time again to just Tangled Up in Blue. It has continuously gotten airplay on classic rock. It's mysterious enough and vague enough to just continually have people re-examine it and write more and more think pieces on it as time has gone on. And it's like what Anne was saying, if there's one or two words that get changed, that can be a whole other think piece. There's so many great cover versions that are so different than Dylan. That continually gives an album new life. I loved Sean Colvin's version of You're Gonna Make Me Lonesome When You Go. I love Nico Case's version of Buckets of Rain. But I also think it's just there's always going to be 18-year-olds, there's always going to be 25-year-olds that are going to rediscover this album. And it is such a personal album. It's, it's about the human heart. So I don't, I don't see that changing and going anywhere. You know, you mentioned that Blood on the Tracks is now potentially going to be made into a film. Of course, it was once before part of a film, Todd Haynes's movie about Dylan, I'm Not There. And it's interesting because in that film, which is in part in times surreal inquiry into Dylan's changing persona, it's divided up into all these different sections and all these different actors play the Dylan figure. 
But the one section of the film that's kind of realistic is the section that evokes this album, Blood on the Tracks. Heath Ledger gives a wonderful performance as Robbie Clark, the Dylan figure in that section. And it, it's interesting because it's a little respite in the middle of this very kind of confusing, wonderful, but, you know, very challenging film. It gives you just a love story, a simple little love story, a simple twist of fate. I first met in New York in January of 64 in the village. They just buried their president. Love was in the air. Wait, you're French? Yes, so? Well, you gotta be kidding me. Why? No, nothing is perfect, you kidding? I think you're making a joke. Uh, no, 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 no. No joke. Then what else, aside from being French, you like so much about me? Your hair, your mouth, your eyes, your lips. They sat together in the park As the evening sky grew dark She looked at him and he felt a spark tingle to his bones. It connected Dylan to his work, which in general, he always tried to avoid those connections. But this was a record where it was like, here's the, not the People magazine Dylan, but kinda, you know? Definitely the Rolling Stone profile Dylan that we never really got in any other way because Bob Dylan doesn't speak to the press in that way. He's not interested in being a celebrity. He's had a remarkable career of avoiding that. But this was the one case where he became, quote unquote, relatable. And I think uh, we crave that in our musicians, for better or worse. And so people were grateful to receive that gift from him. Musicians, they're just like us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not Dylan's thing. But on this record, you kind of feel like, you know, all the imagery of like him sitting on a bench or whatever. It's like, wow, Bob Dylan actually sat on a bench? What, you know, <laughs> did he have an ice cream? I mean, it's hard to imagine. I always imagine him sitting like in a library in a leather bound chair. So to have him sitting on a bench, <laughs> potentially eating a cone is... <laughs> It's a great image, definitely. (laughs) What flavor ice cream do you think Dylan would like? (laughs) Probably a rocket pop. Just something totally unexpected. (laughs) Life is sad. Life is a bust. All you can do is do what you must. You do what you must do. And you do it well. I do it for you. Honey, baby, can't you tell? This is only the beginning. Over the next three episodes, we'll be diving into how the songs on Blood on the Tracks have evolved over time, the way they've inspired other mediums, and bootlegging culture. And after this, it's not too soon to tell you that our next season will be chronicling the expansive influence of Jimi Hendrix's Electric Ladyland. Be sure to check out our other Consequence Podcast Network programming at consequenceofsound.net. And if you like this show, we'd love to know what you think. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. In fact, Podchaser lets you rate and review specific episodes so you can give feedback as our focus on the album's shift from episode to episode. The Opus is recorded in New York City at Acast by Taylor Dalton and Tim Ruggieri. It's edited and produced by Kat Blackard and Michael Rothman. Our theme music is by Coach Hop. Find out more at coachhop.bandcamp.com. Series artwork is by Stephen Fish. Special thanks to Ann Powers and Jill Sternheimer for their time and insights. Consequence Podcast Network. The expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks, and it inspired damn near the whole rap game.
Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts.